This is the data privacy detective. You know, we all value privacy, at least to some extent, but some of us want to be famous and all of us want to be connected to friends and acquaintances. And, and, and we like the convenience, don't we, from technology that, that requires our personal information for it to operate. So we share our personal details in all sorts of ways. And, and, and this data flows like water down a stream into a lot of oceans and uh, some we'd prefer to avoid. And our personal experiences be really become part of society's fabric, uh, the knowledge base of society. So it's important for a lot of databases like the US Census uh, to compile information about us collectively without invading our personal privacy. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. What a challenge it is. And here to discuss this with us today is, is Alex Watson. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks for inviting me on, Joe. Well, you're very welcome. Now you're a co-founder and the CEO of Gretel AI, and, and we're gonna talk about that today. But before that, uh, you worked for a little company. What was it? Amazon. Yeah, you, you were. <laughs> you helped Amazon Web Services, and uh, you served as a general manager and uh, helped launch its first consumer-facing security offering. And then you turned to smaller uh, companies uh, and founded the security startup Harvest AI. And as I understand it, that that applied natural language processing and artificial intelligence to help businesses identify and protect. Uh, data in the cloud, and then, then you co-founded Gretel AI. So tell us a little bit about Gretel AI. What is that and what's its mission, Alex? Well, it's been an incredible journey and uh, kind of talking through this. Um, during my time uh, as a general manager at AWS and both building software that we used internally, uh, a project called Macy, uh, which as you mentioned earlier, customers use to identify and protect important data in the cloud. Um, and then also, you know, working with our customers, we started to realize how incredibly difficult, given all the talk about data and innovation, it becomes for those companies to allow their developers to work with that sensitive data they collect that they would use to create a better product. So we asked ourselves the question, can we use privacy enhancing technology as an enabler for access to data? Yeah, and um, if you instead don't, if you of, don't uh, have a reputation for building that, consumers won't give you the information that is needed. Is that the essence of? I think that's a, I think it's a really important part of, uh, of that consumer trust. Um, and I think it'll be a differentiator for products in the future. I think we see that right now where you see so much interest in Apple products, for example, where Apple's taken really marked steps uh, towards building um, technologies that help protect their customer data. Well, data breaches cost a fortune for companies, but really the big risk is really reputational risk. If you get a reputation for abusing people's privacy, business might not last long and, and there's a lot <laughs> at stake here. And uh, yeah, so let's talk about that. So now the giants like Amazon, Google, uh, uh, some of the others, Apple itself, uh, they store and they use vast amounts of personal data about us. And in part, they, they need to do that. Uh, there's no way to do business without doing that. Uh, but in the United States, at least, maybe it's different in Europe, I, I know it is, uh, unless we as individuals take active steps to, to limit the use and transfers of our data, uh, we all know it can be hacked, it can be shared far beyond what we really expect. So, so how does what Gretel does, Gretel.ai uh, does, contribute to the privacy of individuals? How, how do you go about that? 
I think the problem you just described is actually the uh, the thesis or the starting point that we had for Gretel, uh, which is saying that of course uh, businesses and you know in my past experience, like it's it's great at Amazon to be able to learn from your customers and build a better product. Um, where things go wrong is the question of do you always need to have raw access to customer information and and user identities and privacy. Uh, protected information to create those decisions. And our our belief here is that you don't. Um, so we have been working on technology we call synthetic data, but essentially we use machine learning to create artificial data sets that have the same insights and statistical distributions as the original data, but they protect user privacy. Without needing to know if it's Jim Jones or Sally Smith. So. Exactly, so you you're can really provide- saying, Yeah, I'm sorry, you're really saying privacy is a problem rooted in code, not in compliance. Is that your message? Yes, we wanted to start with the idea of treating privacy as an engineering problem and compliance and policy will always be a really important factor there, but we can massively reduce the risk surface and uh, the, the overall risk that a business takes accessing data if most of that data uh, is, is anonymized and scrubbed. Yeah, and you're talking about databases, basically, when you're talking about what a business is, is doing. So uh, I guess you're really creating technical, uh, so technological solutions to enable scalable and flexible data sharing while protecting privacy, is that the aim? That's exactly it. Uh, we want to start with making data provably anonymized. And if it's possible Provable to do that. privacy. I like it. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> phrase. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Exactly. Thank you. If that's possible, and there's a few steps to get there, we're building on the shoulders of giants where you see mathematical research and fields such as differential privacy. If it is possible to make data provably anonymized, we massively open up the ability for information sharing and learning across entire industries. So you really, uh, let, let's deal with the phrase auto anonymization of data. What does that mean? None of us have time in our lives or very few of us have time in our lives uh, to become uh, privacy experts, um, really. And, and just like encryption, you know, there's the saying, you know, um, friends don't let friends run their own encryption. Um, a similar expert with privacy here that um, we want to make it so simple that you don't have to be an expert. Um, you can simply say, here's my data set, my database um, that I want to work with. I would like an anonymized version of it and get immediate access to that data. Now, is there a difference though between anonymization and pseudonymization? In other words, how, how secure can you really guarantee that uh, uh, personal data becomes after it's auto-anonymized? Those are two words that have definitely uh, have uh, definitely been misunderstood over time. Uh, traditional anonymization, as most people think of it, which would be just redacting people's names yeah. or replacing phone numbers and social security numbers, for example, inside a data set, is really pseudonymization. Uh, what you're doing is you are replacing, you know, kind of known identifying elements with. You're either Xing it out, uh, re replacing it with a black line if you want to take the uh, the kind of old CIA redaction um, example. Um, but what we've seen um, is that other data inside of that that may not have your name can still be identifying. And there's been a bunch of examples that have happened over the past couple of years. But um, other you know uh, pieces of data, when pieced together, can also uh, identify a user or personality. So nothing can really absolutely guarantee a hack-proof environment for when, when something becomes a piece of data. But what I think what you're really saying, when data moves from an individual or a business on to somebody else, 
you can uh, separate the underlying individual subject from the essence of the data. Mm -hmm. We like to use the term extracting the public data from a private data set. Very good. Now, you mentioned this is another phrase I think we all need to come to understand. Differentially private synthetic data. Now, that's four big words. But what, what does that mean? That is a mouthful, first of all. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when we talk about synthetic data, it's really artificial data. It's new data that's been created that has the same types of insights and distributions as the original data, but does not contain the um, unique elements. It doesn't have your records in it. Um, how do we guarantee that that synthetic data that we've generated, the artificial data, doesn't have, for example, Alex Watson's data inside of it? Yeah. Um, we use a technique called differential privacy. Um, and you did an excellent podcast on it before, uh, but you know, for a quick summary on uh, differential privacy, I like to think of it, and the Census Bureau was one of the pioneers in building this, I like to think of it as saying, given a, a data set of a thousand people, what differential privacy helps guarantee that if you had two data sets, you know, one had a thousand people and one had a thousand people minus Alex Watson, you ask those data sets a question, you would get exactly the same response. So essentially you're proving that one person's data does not affect the overall output of your model. And if you can do that, you can say that no individual's data has been compromised or is recoverable. So it's a really cool and powerful math mathematical concept um, that we are applying as we create artificial data. Well, let's take a couple of real life examples. I, I think you've deal dealt at least with both of these. Uh, uh, take Uber. Uh, Uber in some cities uh, has scooters you can clock into, and then you go use to go from one place to another. And then, so that's geolocation data going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you encountered that that problem because it's, it's it's one thing to rent a scooter and pay for it. That's fine, but it's another thing if everybody else can figure out where you're going, where where you've been. And that can be as in as it can be or notorious as it can be. It can be your employer knowing you're now interviewing for a job across the street at the arch rival. Well, you may not want him to know that. So, so what did you do about the Uber scooter case? When we were first starting to experiment with privacy enhancing technology and we were building synthetic data, we wanted to look for a couple torture tests, some of the most difficult things possible. And uh, one place we went to very quickly, and there's been a fair amount of, um, of research and, and conversation around it, is around location data. It's so central to advertising. It's so central to city planning, for example. Um, and you have, for example, uh, uh, when Uber or other um, you know, bike share, ride share companies go into a city, uh, they actually have a public feed that has a location of every single scooter um, that's been parked um, all the time. It's up to and date within five minutes. there are perfectly valid reasons for that. I, I wonder where, where are the scooters and what, yeah. what are the normal rates and it might affect traffic light timing, all sorts of perfectly valid purposes, right? Exactly. Yeah. So what we wanted to say is, is, yes, we see the value of that for understanding traffic patterns across the city, for understanding where people like to go eat, where to build a new restaurant or bar, uh, fascinating use cases. But that precise location information is also really identifying. It could put you in front of someone's house, for example. Yeah. So we wanted to say, is it possible to create another data set that could be shared with cities, could be shared anywhere that has the same insights, lets you track, for example, where scooters um, travel between you know, noon and 2 p.m., for example, but without 
putting you on someone's doorstep or without revealing a real ride pattern that was used yeah, by the, the scooter. Yeah, the city doesn't need to use who's, who's using the scooter. They're just trying to do a traffic pattern. Good example. Let's let's talk about, and, and that's a good example of geolocation data. Good heavens. It's uh, mm-hmm. almost all smartphones. I don't know how many of my listeners know. They can actually adjust their settings, you know, but we all use it to, you know, find where to go in a car or whatever it may be. Let's, let's take another example. Uh, you, you noticed uh, a very interesting thing about health data. Now, nothing could be more important than under than the reliability of the data set. When you're making a vaccine or trying to solve a disease or do hospital planning, all sorts of reasons. And this one had to do about heart disease. It was a UCI heart disease example. And what, what happened there? Well, this is such a cool example of, of something at Amazon uh, we would refer to as one of our core leadership principles of, of uh, working backwards from a customer problem. And uh, we were working with uh, some folks at UCI and actually working on one of their openly published data sets. So it's a heart disease data set. Um, if you go on the online data set competition platform called Kaggle, it's one of the top five data sets being used period right now. Yes, awesome platform that data scientists use to collaborate and work on data. And this data set um, has uh, really great information that you can use to train algorithms to detect heart disease. Um, what we noticed um, going through this um, data set was that there was a massive, we call it an imbalance, um, but you had a, 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 a massive difference between the number of uh, male patients uh, that data was having. 58% were men. Yeah, exactly. So you have a two to one ratio of male to female patients here. Um, so if you train an algorithm on top of it to detect male heart disease, what happened? Well, to detect heart disease, you create an algorithm that is excellent at detecting male heart disease and very and terrible there are at detecting real differences female. between female heart disease and male heart disease for genetic and other reasons. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the database, it wasn't that they were misinterpreting the database, whoever was using it, but the database was flawed. Uh, the database is flawed, and when algorithms run on top of it, the algorithm tries to do the best job it can across the entire data set. Well, you saw this in recent polling. We're recording this after the 2020 election, and the, it's not that the polls were wrong, but the database wasn't who turned out to vote. That's exactly things. right. Yeah. So yeah. the question we started with was saying, would it be possible I mean, in absence of going out and gathering um, more female heart disease patients, uh, which would be the the perfect scenario, in absence of that, whether it's too expensive or too time consuming, or you just don't have access to do that, can we make a better data set? And the idea with creating a better data set there was using this synthetic platform we've created to create more representative female patients inside that data set. We did that, and then we ran the top data science, um, they're called kernels, but essentially the top data science algorithms that have been developed, the exact same algorithms across our new data set and uh, had amazing results. We ended up noticing a 6% increase from about 88% accuracy to 94% accuracy um, for female heart disease detection. And we improved overall accuracy across male and females both by about 2%. Well, so really promising. Yeah, any way to track back whether it was Sally Smith or Jim Jones, whose hard information is being gathered. So, you're, it really is so essential to they have databases like that that are so critical to the human advancement, uh, reliable, so that people aren't threatened and think, well, I, I'm not going to share my data because uh, I'm afraid it'll get misused. So that's, mm-hmm. that's what you're into. Well, there's obviously great public benefit in encouraging people to share sensitive data like medical information. 
what do you think, Alex? Can auto-anonymization and differentially private synthetic data, those, those two phrases we talked about, do you think they'll end up really encouraging more people to share their private information uh, more broadly for important purposes? I think it will make uh, people more comfortable. And I think that the real power here is opening up innovation um, between um, you know, businesses that are building with data, uh, research organizations, education, um, basically unlocking innovation through access to data. So as you mentioned, this is very early technology. Uh, some of these algorithms we're working with are only several years old, but the promise um, of anonymized data unlocking innovation, I think is, is tremendous. And it has privacy by design as a societal objective. And in this case, not just to protect individual privacy, but to advance knowledge and science and everything else that's important to improving lives. That's exactly right. Well, Alex, thank you for this great education on it. Uh, thanks for what you're doing. And uh, any, any final words for our listeners today? Uh, no, I appreciate the time. I'm really excited to drive this forward. And, uh, you know, our, our platform is completely open source and we've got a lot of research out there. So I'd encourage you to, to take a look at it. And thank you very much for the time today, Joe. Thank you, Alex. And as always, I will conclude by reminding us at all, reminding us all, protecting your personal data begins with you. <laughs>